This is the Ball Talk Pod. Evan Kinsey. Starting Good afternoon, and thanks for tuning in to the Ball Talk Pod with Evan Kinsey. On today's show, we welcome former Kentucky basketball player Cameron Mills on the show. Cameron, thanks for coming on. You're welcome, Evan. Thanks for having me. Cameron played for the University of Kentucky from 1994 to 1998, winning two, cha- two championships with the team, one in 96 and the other in 1998. After his playing career, he has worked in the broadcasting business, having his own show, website, and his new documentary that I highly recommend. He also worked ministries, and we're, we're really glad to have him, Cameron, on, and I think he will bring a lot to our show. Thank you, Evan. Okay. Our first topic of the day is your career at Kentucky. Uh-huh. You grew up in Kentucky, probably a U.K. fan for life. What was that like coming to play at Rupp Arena and seeing what uh, – having a successful career there. Well, I, first of all, I, I noticed when you called me a few minutes ago, I think your number is in Somerset. Are you in Somerset? Stanton. Stanton. Okay. Well, it's fairly close. Well, I grew up in Somerset. Um, that was where my childhood was. And so I grew up there. And, you know, being anywhere in Kentucky, you don't have much of a choice. Uh, I guess maybe if you live in Louisville, um, you're not necessarily a Kentucky fan. But anywhere else, for the most part, you're going to be, you know, eastern Kentucky, certainly western Kentucky. I mean, all the way down to Paducah, um, close to Mississippi. Even, you know, Cape Girardeau, Missouri is actually a big hotbed of Kentucky fans. Um, so I didn't have much of a choice. And add to that, my dad played at Kentucky. So I grew up, and I didn't grow up in, in what you would call, a, you know, like a lot of these people, a lot of people grew up in, in, in families where their parents are incredible fanatical fans. Uh, mine really weren't, and I understand that now, kind of being on the other side. You know, my dad was a fan. My dad would go to games. My dad watches the games, but we were never, you know, we were never like, you know, travel to see the teams play in the final fours. And, you know, we weren't, we wouldn't, you know, we would, we wouldn't schedule our, our schedule around games. So, um, but, uh, I grew up just a Kentucky fan, but when it really started hitting home for me about what that was, was third grade when, uh, I had to do a, I guess a collage for uh, a third grade project about my hero. And I didn't know who my hero was at that point until, uh, my mom, you know, I, I certainly my father was a hero, but I was thinking in terms of celebrity heroes. And uh, mom, kind of, it's the first time I remember learning what my dad was as a former Kentucky player. Um, it was at that point that I decided that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play ball at Kentucky. So, um, so you've got starting way back in the third grade for me. Um, that dream kind of seeded um, in my heart and in my in my mind that this is what I want to do. And to get to the point where. It not only happened, but I mean, look, I could have easily, and most look, most Kentucky players do have careers of four years. Well, not anymore, they don't, but uh, used to four years where, you know, you play, um, you're a Kentucky ball player, um, you have a great career, um, but that's it. Well, I was, for, I, and I, I, when I think back about this, it just, it blows my mind. I was on 25% of Kentucky's national championship teams. I mean, we've only won eight. It gets lost sometimes, even though we know we've won eight. It gets lost because, you know, the fans kind of expect one every year. But we've only won eight. And to sit back and think about my career and think, 
I either sat on that bench in the 96, certainly, um, or was in the game during 25% of Kentucky's national championships. And that, that is amazing to me. And I, I was there, and I tell people this all the time, I was there during some very fortunate years, um, during some very good years. Um, and so it was it was amazingly special, as special as you can imagine, Evan, um, to, to get to live out my dream, to get to play on Kentucky's team, to get to wear the number I always dreamed of wearing, which was my father's number, Kentucky number 21, um, and then get to be a part of two national championships. I mean, I, there's a reason my my book, when when I wrote it after after my senior season, there's a reason I called it a dream come true because there was no other title that really fit the story uh, or my story and what I had happen at Kentucky. Yeah, uh, I've always wondered what it would be like to have uh, your father play for the team you're going to. So, yeah. I remember whenever you said that, I thought of uh, Devin Booker, his dad played yeah. Yeah. at Missouri, and he chose a Kentucky, to play for Kentucky. So yeah. that was something probably hard for him. He probably wanted to uh, go into the it, it, it's, that's actually an interesting point because I never thought about that. But see, the difference is, is that when you're when you're playing at Kentucky and when your dad played at Kentucky and, and you're talking basketball, the highest that's the highest echelon. Of, you know, you've got Carolina, Duke, Kansas, UCLA, Kentucky. As far as I'm concerned, those are the five uh, you know greatest uh, college basketball programs there have ever been. Obviously, Kentucky being number one as far as I'm concerned because we've got the most wins all time and the most championships, second most championships as we are slowly closed in on UCLA. Um, but you know, Devin coming here, he went to the best school he could get, which was the best school. Um, and I wonder how different that was for him to, I'm sure he turned down a scholarship to Missouri. I'm sure there was a little bit of pressure, maybe, uh, for him to play at Missouri. Uh, but you know, I got to believe his dad wanted him to go to Kentucky, whereas that's what my dad wanted me to do. He wanted me to go to Kentucky. The difference is I didn't have the ability to, I didn't have the skill set to, I wasn't good enough player to play Kentucky in the nineties. Um, and so that's why I had to walk on, but I'm certainly glad I did. Can you tell us what it was like coming in as a walk on, having to walk hard every day, and then finally seeing it turn around uh, during your senior season playing on a championship team? Well, it actually turned around my junior season. Senior season, I played less. Um, I was I was averaging less minutes a game. I think my senior season, I was my junior year. My junior year um, was when everything kind of happened. And I was telling a friend a few weeks ago, they were asking me what was my what was the most. I forget how they worded the question, but the question was basically, "What what part of your of your career at UK are you the most proud of?" Uh, and the answer is not the '98 championship or the '96 championship. It's the '97 uh, Final Four run or the '97 Final Championship game run, uh, because that was when. Uh, Derek Anderson was out with an ACL tear. Jeff Shepard had redshirted. Alan Edwards had a broken foot. Um, I was the only two guard left because uh, Alan could play two. Derek could play two, even though they both could play three. Shep was a two guard, but he was redshirted. There were there were there were no other um, there was no other answers really for Coach Patino that year except me as far as the two position. Um, and so he threw me in. All of a sudden, I go from literally the the, the mop up guy, you know, the the you know the what people call the human victory cigar. Um, to um, playing significant minutes and significant minutes in the most important games of the year. So, I mean, I went from in the SEC tournament in 97, went from um, 
let's see, I, I was I, I had six points the first game of the SEC tournament, then I had 12 points the second game, 16 points the championship game against who would turn out to be um, my head coach the next year, Tubby Smith and his Georgia Bulldogs, and then we go to the first round of the, of the NCAA tournament, I had 19 points. So I kept increasing my point output uh, for those four games and then wound up having, I think, 11 against Iowa, um, another 19 against um, St. Joseph's, and then was blanked against, um, uh, let's see who we played. It would have been uh, Utah uh, in the in the regional championship game, and then wound up having 10 and 12 in the final four games um, in the national championship game. So I, that that's the part of my career that I'm most proud of, and that's the part when, like, to your question, you ask, well, what you know, what did it feel like to kind of you know walk on and and work hard? Well, that was when kind of the work hard everything culminated, and I felt like this is why I had to work hard. This you know this opportunity because the reality is I didn't work any harder than any other my than any of my other teammates. I probably in some aspects they'd probably tell you I worked less hard than they did. Um, but uh, you know it, the cool thing about Coach Patino. And one of the reasons of, you know, regardless of anything he goes through in his life, and he's had some tough, tough years here recently, um, I'll always be in some sense loyal to him, and in a great sense loyal to him. Um, you know, I, I, if, I, I won't, I won't, I won't say that. You know, there are certain things that he's done that I wish he hadn't done, and I don't think are necessarily right. Um, but he will always be my coach, and he'll always be my coach because he did not have to give me a chance to play at Kentucky. I, there was no nothing that I had that I was going to bring to his program uh, that he could foresee or that I could foresee. It was going to be beneficial to him, and he let me walk on anyway. Now, did it turn out good for him? I, I think in some sense in that 97, he he had said several times, there's no way we make it to the Final Four without Cameron Mills. And I, I, I laugh when I hear, hear myself say that now because it sounds so foolish um, compared to what I was doing uh, the first uh, part of my career, which was basically only getting in games when we were up 30 or down 30, and we were never down 30. We had Tony Delk on the show a couple times, and he raved about the 96 team. Uh, so we know a lot about that. Nobody really talks about the 98 team. That's right. What it was like, what the difference between those two teams are. Yeah. Not, not being so uh, expected to win the championship. Yep. And 96, everybody believed you would do it. Absolutely. Well, that you you hit it right there. That that's the big difference. But internally, as a team, and it goes right along with those two statements. You know, '96 we were expected to do it. Well, as a result of that, we were cocky. We were arrogant. Uh, probably too arrogant on some levels. Uh, we had uh, a swagger about us. I guess would be the 2017-18 term, maybe 16 term. If we're honest about that, um, you know, where we just we our our whole goal was to embarrass you. And and really, that should be any team's goal to step out on the court. We want to, as far as um, play and as far as score you know we want to show you you have no you have no <laughs> you have no right to be on the court with us we're just that much better than you and, and that really uh, is how any competitor should look at competition now once the game's over the match is over then you shake hands and you say good game and you compliment your opponent but during the game it's all about blowing them out um and that's what we did in 96 in 98 we didn't expect we i think internally we expected to win because I, I again i don't know it's it's a foreign idea to me um to go into a season in anything and not believe that you have a chance to win it all whatever it is whether it's super bowl or whether it's the ncaa uh, championships or whether it's tennis or golf i mean I, I can't imagine going into a tournament on any level going into a season on any level and thinking mentally um yeah, we don't have a chance. We don't, we have no chance to win this. Well, then why would you bother competing? Um, and so, so we went in as a team expecting to win in '98. 
but no one else expected us to win. And I think we also realistically understood that we had lost so much talent in those years before. And so what made the 96 team special was, I think, our our, our cockiness, our arrogance, our swagger, our, 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 our um, confidence probably is the best word. Um, what made the 98 team special was we were a team in every sense of the word. I mean, we genuinely cared about each other. In the documentary, um, Hashimu Evans has this great line where he and he just kind of says it so matter-of-factly. I think that's why, why I love the way he said it. He said, there's never been a team that has been closer in college basketball than the 1998 Kentucky Wildcats. He, it's not, those aren't exactly his words, but it's that is what he says. The closest team in the history of college basketball. And we were because, and I don't really know why, because we did the same things in 98 as we did in 96. We went to movies together, went bowling together, just hung out together constantly. And as much time as we had to spend together because of basketball, you kind of you kind of get to the point where you think, do I want to see this guy again? Do I want to hang out with this guy again? I've been with him all day. You know, I've been with my teammates all day. I want some free time or me time. And we rarely did. We always hung out and we genuinely liked each other. And I think that had a, a lot, a whole lot to do with um, our success in 98 is because when you genuinely like your teammates, you genuinely don't care if they get credit for winning a game. And so if you go back and look at the, the scores during that season, I bet we had eight or nine different lead scores, leading scores in individual games. I mean, even to the point where I was leading score one game. So, you know, it didn't, it, it doesn't happen that often. Usually you've got one or two guys, maybe three that will lead the way most of the year. We had about eight or nine because I don't care if Scott Padgett was a leading scorer one game. He didn't care if I was. Jeff Shepard, he didn't have a lead. I mean, it just, it was amazing what happened to us that year where all of a sudden, it's, it was everything was about my teammate, um, and that's all that mattered. Is, is my teammate okay? Then I'm okay. I hadn't originally thought of this, but something another reason why I think some people didn't expect you to go all the way is because you had a coaching change that year. You went yep. from Patino to Tubby Smith, and Tubby's now at Memphis, I believe. Uh, yep, that's right. Uh, what was that like? You know, you were close. Uh, the team was close, so you didn't really change players that much. But what was it like uh, changing coaches, and how did that affect you? Well, it, it, it wound up being a, a difficult, making things difficult early in the year because the coaching change meant that Coach Smith did things differently than Coach Patino did. Um, he wasn't a better coach or a worse coach. I mean, they were they were both they are both um, high caliber coaches, some the, among the best coaches in the country. Um, but that Coach Smith did things differently, and when you take what Coach Patino had been able to do. Let's just go back to the prior years. In '96, we win the national championship. '97, uh, we went. We're the national. We're the runner-up. Uh, we get to the final game and, and lose to Arizona in overtime. So you've got Coach Patino's um, equation for success is working, obviously. Well, Coach Smith comes in with a different equation. And so we instantly, and I think naturally, questioned whether or not he knew what he was doing. Not because we doubted it, just because we had no experience with his way. We had experience with Coach Patino's way, and his way we knew was successful. So if you change anything in that, then is it possible that it's going to be successful? You know, but this, is the, this, is, this is the solution to winning national championships and competing for national championships is Coach Patino's way. Coach Smith's way is different, therefore it must not be. So we had a hard time buying in to a lot of the concepts he was teaching us, to the way he coached, to the way he worked officials, uh, to the way we prepared for games. It was all different. And I think that's what we questioned. And because, because we never were in this, I think Shep said this in the documentary too, and I, I thought he said it well. 
we were never in an active rebellion against Coach Smith. We were kind of in this passive indifference where, okay, well, yeah, Coach, we'll do it because you're telling us to do it, but we're not, we don't believe in it. I think that was the problem. Uh, you know, we never disobeyed our coaches, um, but we did not believe in what they were teaching us, so to speak. And that became a problem. And so what we did is after the Ole Miss loss, February 14th, 1998, um, we, we had a team meeting. And in that team meeting, basically what was decided is, look, if we, if we are in rebellion, I mean, we, we, at that point, that's what we were saying. We were using that word. We're not buying into this coach and this coaching staff. Well, if we're not buying into our leaders, then we are a team divided. If we're a team divided, there's no chance to win a national championship. You, everything has to be clicking. You, you might, maybe you can get away with having one fault, one issue that's not cleaned up. You're like maybe you can, you can be a high turnover team, or maybe you can be, you, know, you give up a lot of offensive rebounds. But that's rare to do that. You've got to be clicking on all cylinders, and all the issues, all the problems in your team have to be mopped up by March. Um, now they can they can be problems until March, but once March hits, you've got to be you got to mop them up, or you're going to go home early. Um, and so we just kind of had this team meeting. Said, look, we got to mop this up. If, if if we can't go into the NCAA tournament expecting to do something special uh, with the team divided, so basically we just said, okay, whether Coach Smith knows what he's doing or doesn't, and we didn't know, we got to sell out. We got to completely 100% sell out. We can't we cannot be in this you know non belief. We've got to believe in our coaches, believe in our coaching staff. And the result of doing that, we didn't lose again. And it was all because now you've got the combination of a coaching staff who turns out knew exactly what they were doing, a head coach who knew exactly what he was doing, and now you've got the team buying into what the coach is teaching. And so as a result of that, we win it all. As I said earlier, you now do radio. So you talk a lot about Kentucky basketball. So what do you see from this year's team, and how successful do you think they'll come be come March? Like you said, you got to buy into March. So yep. what do you think about this year's team and their chances? Well, I, I, I like the way you say it, Evan, because a lot of people don't quite understand that you do have a buy until March. Now, that doesn't mean you can be lazy until March. It means you've got to be fixing all your problems before March. It means the regular season is just, listen, that's the great thing about college basketball. Unlike college football, in that a loss does not take you out of the running. A loss in the regular season um, can actually, in some sense, if you have a smart coach and a smart team, can help you. It, it can help you because coaches can rant and rave all they want about what your problems are and what you need to mop up. But until you lose, a lot of times you don't believe it. And again, I go back to the 918. What happened? Well, coaches were, t- were telling us things. We weren't buying in. And a loss catapulted us to fixing our problems internally as a team. And then we didn't lose again. So losses can be good things. Um, as far as this year's team, I don't know, to be honest, where they're going. What I do know is that, and I said this the other day in a tweet, and got a lot of reactions on it. Uh, most of it, people arguing with me. Uh, and people angry with me about what I tweeted. But what I tweeted, I still believe. I believe this team is capable of doing something special. I believe there's the talent there. Now, there are some issues, and I believe um, they've got to mop up those issues in the next few weeks. Um, or, you know, it might be an IT year. It might be a first-round, second-round out year. Um, but the talent's there uh, to do something amazingly special. So, um, th- but they've got they've got to get some work done. There, there, there are good signs, though. And then this is what I said in the tweet. I, I saw things like, you know, look, it, my frustration are fans who, like, midway through a basketball season are saying things on Twitter saying, you know what, I'm done with this team. I'm just done with them. Now, I don't know what it means to be done with the college basketball team. I don't know. You're not a fan anymore. You're not going to watch anymore. You're not going to – 
uh, schedule your uh, schedule around the games. You know, I don't know what that means, but can you imagine if one of the players came out of the locker room saying the same thing? We would massacre that kid. We would massacre that kid as a quitter. And so, but yeah, for somehow it's, it's okay for fans who, it, let's remember, the word fan is short for fanatics. And we like to say in Kentucky that we're all true blue. Well, if we're true blue, then doesn't that mean we root for the Kentucky Wildcats, that we buy in to their team no matter what, whether they're having a winning season or not? Isn't that what true blue would, would effectively mean? And yet I see fans saying, I'm done with this team. And I don't get that. I, I don't understand that. Um, I don't know that this team's going to do anything special. But I'll tell you this. They believe they can. Because if you watch them play, and I was down at Rep last night. I was down at Rep the night before against Florida. If you watch them play, they believe in each other. They're coaching each other. They're not quitting on each other. Um, they're not, you know, there's not a single player on that court that's coming out saying, I'm done with this team, just like just like some. And by the way, it's, it's I'm sure, a small minority of fans who are doing that. I have no doubt it, it's, it's just a very vocal minority. But at the same time, it's so frustrating. I, I just can't imagine quitting on a group of teenagers like this. Something that uh, fans were expecting is Jared Vanderbilt to make a big uh-huh. impact. I, I was one of them that didn't think he would be that big of a, a game changer, but uh, since watching him, he's really helped our ball movement. Uh, yeah. His first game, he was phenomenal passing the ball. He's a little uh, energetic, but getting the ball around, he was really working as the point forward. What do you think that he can really provide for this team? What has he done so far that we didn't have before? Well, I, I think he just, number one, he provides some energy. I, and I don't mean energy in a, of itself. I think he, I think what he does is he supplies a, a hopefulness. Like all of a sudden, okay, now we've got Jared. Jared. We've been waiting on Jared all year. But here's the thing. Just like we've given these guys, and just like I always give the team the regular season to get ready for March, we got to give Jared time to get ready. Um, now he doesn't have the luxury of waiting until, of you know, a full season. He's going to have about a month and a half uh, before he's got to be. We got to we need him clicking on all cylinders. Um, but you know, and so, and not only does he need to be, but now you got to work him into the chemistry of the team. Um, in the same sense, um, but you know, as far as what he does, I, I, look. One one thing is he is going to be a big body, and we we have struggled with our rebounding. And rebounding is just watching uh, against Mississippi State last night. Rebounding, it, it, we always say this: it's a hustle stat. Sorry about that noise. Um, it's a hustle stat. It is. It has nothing to do with your height. Has nothing to do with your length. But it has everything to do with are you willing to go get the ball? And if you're willing to go get the ball, and you got more heart and soul go getting the ball than someone else does, chances are ninety percent of the time you're going to win that fight. You know, occasionally the ball will bounce your bounce the other person's way, but if you want the ball, go get it. And, and I think that's what Jared can bring us. Um, I, I think, you know, other than that, and this is kind of a, I think, again, and I've already stated this, it's kind of a philosophical thought, but I just think he's going to provide a, lin- a little energy to the team, say, okay, we got Jared back. Now we're good. You know, now now, now, now we can go do something because we got our what, one of one of the guys who is supposed to be our big star player this year. He's here. Um, give him some time to kind of get his wind up because right now he's out of shape, um, which is which is understandable. I mean, you, there's a difference between practice shape and game shape. Um, and, uh, you know, once he's there, I, I think he's going to provide a lot for us. Now, that doesn't mean we're still going to do anything special, but it means we've got one more chance. Something that I think is also a big part of why we're not doing as good as we hope was we don't really have that one true knockdown three-point shooter like we had yeah. past. Whether it was Tony Hill, Jody Meeks, Malik Monk, or Jamal Murray, we haven't had that this year. Uh, we had Jamal Baker, but he hasn't been able to suit up due to injury. He's a right. shooter. Uh, right. Do you think that the three-point shooting can really help our team because – 
you know that's how college basketball you mean is turning you mean not having it yeah not having a yeah three point shooting threat other than Kevin Knox he struggled lately. yeah well but you know I wouldn't worry about him struggling lately because look I don't care what kind of shooter you are you can go through streets and I kind of like the idea that, that uh, Knox is struggling right now because that means there's a chance he's going to catch fire you know once we get closer to the tournament if not in the tournament um, so I, I'm kind of excited about that possibility but yeah I do think he can hurt us because look it's nice to have Knox who who you know is the difference in saying a spot up shooter and a knockdown shooter because a spot up shooter is what I did that, that's what I, I wasn't going to dribble take anyone off the dribble and get it I wasn't a scorer I was a shooter that's all I could do I knew my role I, I stayed outside the three point line because I could do more damage out there than I can inside the lane where I can get my, my team into turnover trouble um, Knox is different than he can do both um, so you know we need and I'm not saying we need a spot up shooter but we do need a knockdown shooter, and you're right. We need somebody that can, you know, you've got you've got to stretch the defense. And if you don't have that guy that can consistently knock that down, um, you're going to have a difficult time stretching the defense. So it's possible because look, uh, you know, Tommy can shoot the three. He's not great at it, but he can. And there could be a game. I guarantee you, there could be a game when he knocks down five or six. And here's what that's going to do. Number one, that's going to give us those five or six extra points as far as you know, if he had made a two as opposed to a three. And number two, that next game whoever we play, they're going to have to start respecting that. And so that's instantly going to stretch the defense. So the defense is going to have to go out and say, this kid hit five threes the game before. We're going to have to go out and guard him, and that's going to leave that open a little bit more wide open for guys like Vanderbilt and, and, and Richards and guys like that. So, I mean, there's there, there's hope there. And that's what I keep saying. Everyone kind of wants to pick apart. And I'm not saying you're doing this, Evan, because you're not. I mean, this I think I think that's a very fair question. Uh, do we need a, you know, can it hurt us? But everyone wants to pick apart one thing that they see, maybe two things that they see. Oh, we don't have a chance this year because of this. But that's not how basketball works. That, that, you're playing against another team and see it works both ways. You have sometimes it doesn't matter what you do or how good you play your opponent might play better and so you can play the perfect game but if your opponent plays the perfect game then it's going to come down to one position. Well no one's going to play the perfect game so it also works the other way around where you know what one or two things that might have hurt you in the regular season maybe your opponent comes out and has one or two things too. So anyone saying we can't do anything this year we're not going to do anything special because of this 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 and this that's not how basketball works. Yeah we need to firm those things up, we need to mop those things up, and we need to fix some things, but there's always a chance, and like, and again, I'll say this to I'm blue in the face, and I'll never stop believing it, because I just know it's true, because it's fact. In college basketball, you can lose every game of the regular season and still be national champion. That's how it works. You win your last four games, of the, uh, your first four games of your conference tournament, as you would have to if you lost all the regular season games, you would be one of those play-in games, um, and you'd probably be in a play-in game in the NCAA tournament for that matter, too. So let's say your last 11 games. You can win your last 11 games, lose your first uh, 29, win your last 11 in your national champions. That's how it works. So we just need to be focused on what's going to happen in March. I think if we do have uh, the opportunity to compete for a national championship, this year, I think it's going to be because you'll guess Alexander, uh, he's been a spark for this team. I didn't really expect that much out of him coming out. Uh, but uh, he's really provided a spark for the team. Yep. Uh, he's actually, if you look at what, depending on what draft board you look at, he might be our number one draft he could be. He, look, he's he's played a lot better um, than anyone expected. I think that's an encouraging too. And by the way, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you out here, uh, Evan, because it's Gilgis. Because I, I mispronounced his name all year too, <laughs> Gilgis Alexander. Um, but listen, that's one of the funny things about this team is that it took me weeks to get all their names down, um, and I still don't have them memorized. Um, but uh, that, here's the thing: no one expected him. 
to do. He was like, if you remember back of all of our of all our recruits that year, no one expected him. Um, he he was like the least of 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 all the expectations put on this thing. He was the least of all of them. He was the guy that was yeah yeah okay. We also got this guy. You know, Quaddy was going to be the point that everyone was excited about, and I still think Quaddy's got more um, upswing than than uh, Gilgis Alexander does. But the thing is. This is what, again, I, I watched this happen last night, and I forget who the players were that substituted him. Uh, I think Hami was one. I think Knox was one. I think maybe Vanderbilt was one. Um, oh, oh, I t- and, and Winnie Gabriel was one. Um, so you had you had five guys in, obviously, and then there was a substitution coming where we substituted three guys for three guys, and the guys that came off the bench, it could be argued, were more talented and better players than the guys they were substituting in for. And we, so this was basically the first substitution. So we went from the starting five into our first three in, and the guys coming off the bench were just as talented, if not more so. There was more uptick, it seemed to me, for them coming in than there was in what we lost. Now, that, that's not to say that this is that we're anywhere close to uh, the um, uh, the platoon system, which I loved. I, w- I probably was the biggest fan of the platoon system there was. The, the platoon system, to me, there was so that, that played so many psychological games with our opponent. I loved it because when you when you work hard for three minutes and you, everyone's winded because there's been three minutes of constant back and forth with no break and all of a sudden, hey, we're substituting in and the guys we're substituting in are as good as the guys we're taking out and you can play that game with your opponent. <laughs> so damaging. Um, and we can kind of, in a much smaller sense, not nearly as much talent, but we're bringing guys off to me. My point is we have a deep rotation. We've got a large rotation of guys that can come in and can do a good job and can do a great job and that, that can be very helpful to us going forward. Okay, our last topic on this Kentucky team is a hot take, actually. Okay. I've been thinking about it. Uh, you saw North Carolina win the national championship. Uh-huh. That team is full of seniors. This team yep. is full of freshmen yep. who maybe not go to the draft. Uh, that's a lot of what uh, – Most of them probably won't, I think, but you never know. Uh, and then you see – uh, what North Carolina has done, they have high recruits. Uh, Theo Pinson came in, uh, Joel Baird, and then they provided a lot uh, in the later seasons. So uh, I think Kentucky turned into a, a really, really big threat. I don't think they're going to be as a, uh, a Final Four team this year, but next yeah. year I really see it because well, you have the returning play. Yeah. Yet. But right. solid recruiting class coming in and some shooters. Uh, really excited the shooters coming in, too. Well, here's the thing. So if we're Kentucky fans and we're tired of the Cal one-and-done system, and that's what I hear from NC from a lot of people on Twitter, I'm just, I've had it with this one-and-done. Okay. Well, the alternative to one-and-done if you're Kentucky is that means you start recruiting less talented players. I mean, that's just that, that's, that's the only other thing you can do. Well, the funny thing is, is the moment we start recruiting less t- – see, see, this is what Kentucky fans frustrate me so much sometimes because they look at what they don't want what they'd rather have, and then they don't realize, okay, to get there, here's what we're going to have to do. That means we're going to have to start recruiting kids that are worse than the kids we've got. Now, what fan is going to be okay with that idea? I mean, you know, because as soon as that happens, if that kid doesn't produce the first two games, we're going to be saying, I can't believe this is all Coach Cal could get. No, he could get the best among the best. We just said that we didn't want him to anymore. Now, he's never going to change his strategy because of what fans say, nor should he. But the bottom line is he's he's going to – what's going to happen is if – let's say we've got three guys from this year's team 
that leave early, okay? That leaves the bulk of this team coming back, okay? So what we're going to have then is we are going to have what a lot of fans say they want, which is guys sticking around more than one year. And by the way, all fans should want guys sticking around more than one year. I just don't have a problem with any guy leaving because I know if they're leaving, chances are they're going to make a million dollars next year. And who, who could, who on earth could honestly um, not want that for another person, especially someone that they're a fan of, which we say we are of these guys. Um, so that's, to me, we, we probably are going to reach a point with this team where most guys are, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to say most, Evan, because I just don't know who's going to go, who's going to stay, but it's looking promising like we're going to have the bulk of this team back next year, uh, which is going to be helpful and make us a much better team then. Uh, would you say that uh, it'd be Knox, Shy, and Hammy? Is that who you'd say would probably go? Um, I would say I would say um, Vanderbilt probably will just because of his yep. his um, potential. Um, I would say Hammy probably or Hami. I'm, I, I call it, I've been calling him Hammy on my radio show just for fun. Um, uh, Hami uh, might go, and um, I think Knox might. But I mean, you just don't know. You, you know, because here's the thing: it's really not how they play during the season. Now they need a good year, but it's not really not that that affects it. It's what the pros think of their potential. That's really where pros are drafting nowadays is on potential. So I'm just not sure who's going to leave. I think I think Hami probably will be going no matter what um, because you know he probably had a chance to get drafted last year in the second round um, and you know he's just got so much freaking athleticism I just think there's a good chance he's going to go as far as everyone else I think Vanderbilt might as well but look if Vanderbilt has a subpar year you know he doesn't really show much potential and it shows that that injury really is problematic for him this year and he needs another year um, of uh, kind of recuperation from that injury then he may be around next year which would be great for us. Uh, I don't. You could see Quade maybe go, uh, but you never know because you saw. I didn't think Isaiah Briscoe would go last year, also, and he went. Uh, yeah. So hopefully Quade comes back and gets some more point guard play. But now we want to transition into what you're doing now. Uh, your radio show, you have and you have a new documentary that just came out. Can you tell our listeners what that is and tell us what it's about? Sure. Well, let's start with the, the radio show I've been doing for three years. I've been doing radio locally in Lexington uh, really since I got done playing. Um, and uh, three years ago, I was uh, I, I was brought in and asked if I wanted my own show. Um, and I said, I, I really I really said no a few times because I didn't really think, I couldn't figure out how it would work into my schedule because I've got three or four jobs. Um, you know, I've got nine to five, Monday through Friday. I've got my ministry, which is, which is traveling and speaking. Um, so long story short, we kind of figured, okay, well, let's do a week weekly show not a week uh not a daily show um on the weekend and so we found a spot on saturday mornings at one point that's now turned into sunday nights from seven to nine um and uh we've been doing it for three years and uh it's just called cameron mills radio and people can find uh find it on itunes the podcast of it they can find um uh the live stream on uh, uh news radio 630 wlap out of lexington here and i think wlap.com is the website where people can find the live stream um, and then uh, the website is CameronMillsRadio.com. And so when we parked, when we basically when we decided to start podcasting, you have to park your podcast somewhere online and then point iTunes and the various streams to it. Um, so we, we said there was no point in having a website and not having any content on it. So I started recruiting writers, uh, basically fans who love to write and love to cover the cats, um, who have come in and uh, have written several. I mean, I've, we've probably got 300, 400 articles up on the website in the past three years um, just from fans who cover the games they go to the games they cover them they cover football basketball they'll cover baseball uh, and they'll cover other stuff they don't just cover uk stuff but um so we've created something there and then 
two years ago I did, or I guess it was last year, I did a documentary on our 9016 on uh, the 20th anniversary of the 9016. Um, and then this year just got done with Out of the Blue, which is the name of the documentary on the 9018. Um, and it came out Christmas Day on WKYT Channel 27 in Lexington and um, and uh, let's see uh, uh, WYMT in Hazard um, and aired on a few other stations all over the state. Uh, but people can find that two ways people can find it. actually one one website I can point everyone to if they want to see this documentary they can go to out of the blue movie.com and there they can see they can uh, follow the link to see the online version and by online version I just mean the version I mean it's the movie online um, or they can order the DVDs as a matter of fact I just shipped uh, seven DVDs right before you called me uh, so uh, we've uh, we're still selling the DVDs and uh, the sales are going very very well but basically the documentary is about our 98 team and everything you and I've already talked about about what, what made that team special, uh, which was this very much very closeness that we had and uh, the idea that we didn't care who got the credit. We just wanted to win games. Yeah, I want all my viewers to check that out. I'm really excited. I'm going to watch it pretty soon. Uh, hopefully uh, everybody likes it. I'm sure they will. And, uh, and I also heard you talking about, you said, your ministry. I read uh-huh. about that. I'd like to hear more about it. Sure. Yeah, well, I got I, I came to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior when I was seven years old uh, there in Somerset. And or I guess close to you, you said you're in Stan, but uh, in Somerset is and I grew up there. But uh, I, I that that's when my life changed. And with, with everything that's gone on in my life in 42 years now, the biggest impact in my life has been a man named Jesus. And so when I was 12 years old, I decided that I wanted to be in ministry. And I didn't know how. I didn't know what it would look like. Uh, but then my life turned out to be a basketball life, so to speak. Um, and playing at Kentucky gave me an enormous platform. And so while I was at Kentucky, I just started speaking. I, I get invited because when you play at Kentucky, people want to make you want you to make appearances. And I would make speaking appearances where I'd go to someone invite me to their Sunday school class or their uh, their youth group or something, and they would ask me to to talk and share my testimony. And so I started doing that and enjoying it. And then um, long long story short, it turned into what's now this coming June will be my 20th anniversary of uh, being in full time Christian ministry. So basically, I travel around and I speak. Um, um, two nights ago, I was in Nortonville, Kentucky, which is down by Hopkinsville, speaking at a men's ministry event. Um, I've got upper, plenty of upper basketball awards nights coming up in March and April, um, and uh, here at the end of February. So that's just I travel and speak is the short uh, short part of it. That's great. Uh, yeah, I'm actually a volunteer uh, upward basketball. Team. Awesome. Well, Cameron, we're really glad that you could, uh, you were able to come. Back. Great show. Uh, we would love to have you back on sometime. Sure. Yeah, sure. Anytime, Evan.